from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. It's a unique model because we are using student-run services. So we're bringing in students from Washington University School of Medicine, and they're the ones that are running the services. I sort of serve as a mentor, and I teach them how to do this so that we can create a new generation of occupational therapists that are prepared to serve our marginalized populations. So these students, I mean, they haven't even graduated. Are they ready for some of the challenges that, <laughs> that come with this? Yeah, so we do a lot of training. Um, <laughs> I'm Sarah Fenske. You might think of occupational therapists as helping people recover from a stroke or maybe a car accident. They teach people how to relearn tasks like cutting food or brushing teeth. They may even assist them as they get used to a wheelchair or a walker. And yes, occupational therapists do that. But they also do more much more. One innovative program through Washington University's Occupational Therapy Program works with people experiencing homelessness, and the idea is to help them not just survive, but to thrive. That program runs on-site Wednesday mornings at St. Patrick's Center. That's the nonprofit in downtown St. Louis working with the city's homeless population. And joining us now with more on the program is Quinn Tominski. She is an assistant professor in Washington University's program in occupational therapy and psychiatry. So, Quinn, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about this program. When did it first get started? Yeah. So um, it started actually about six years ago. Um, I was getting my doctorate in occupational therapy over at St. Louis University. And um, at the time, I worked for an organization here in St. Louis that worked with people who had been housed after being homeless. But the organization also worked part-time in the shelter. And so I went there one day, and, and I took a look around. And I had this experience of something that we call in occupational therapy, occupational deprivation. And it's a unique term, but what it means is there's nothing to do. Hmm. It's kind of a really different way to say boredom. And so I looked around and I said, oh my gosh, we need occupational therapy here. Um, and to, to alleviate yeah. boredom? Or is there something almost more important even that, that comes out of the, the things we kind of consume ourselves with? Sure, sure. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, to alleviate boredom because the things that you do every day, the things that you and I engage in is what brings us health and well-being and joy and satisfaction in our lives. Mm. And so if we don't have activities that are meaningful to us, then we're never going to have health. And so that's what we want to engage this population with. I mean, it makes so much sense. I've never thought about it that way. Like when I think about what I do on a daily basis, I think of these things as things I have to do, but they're actually serving a really important purpose even beyond that. Yes. And it, and so, it, you know, your work is important to you, right? What you do here and um, maybe exercise classes are important to you or going to the doctor, all of those things or taking care of your family are, is what brings you joy in your life, but also so, sort of helps our physical and mental health. So how do you begin to introduce that then into something that's almost like a shelter type setting. Yes. So we started um, on a volunteer basis. So we started by, I took some of the students that I was working with and just brought them in and said, will you give me six months and and let me show you what we can do. Wow. Um, and, That's kind of a big ask there. <laughs> yeah. And um, St. Patrick's Center was lovely. And they said, sure, we're interested. You know, I gave them my pitch about occupational therapy. And we just started by getting to know the clients. So we would just sit down and play a game of chess with them or, you know, sit and talk to them about their lives. But then then we started introducing what we would call 
sexual occupation or activities into their lives. And that was everything from we would run a group where we would do an art project or we would do a chair yoga group. Or then we sort of transitioned to some higher level skills, things like how do we cook a meal Hmm. and how do we go grocery shopping in the cheapest way possible or how do we go grocery shopping in a food pantry? Um, and, and within six months, St. Patrick's Center said that we were the most beneficial service they'd ever brought through the door. Wow. <laughs> I got to say, I mean, when you, when you break it down like this, it makes sense. And yet I have never thought before about occupational therapy in this setting. Is this something that, that elsewhere across the country people were already doing in mass? <laughs> That's a great question. So bl- a little bit about occupational therapy. So we're a 100-year-old profession. We've been around since World War I. Um, we actually started in mental health. So people coming back from from the war, what we call the moral treatment movement, wanting to recognize that that people should get back to living lives and, and shouldn't um, just end up incarcerated or, or in a, um, a psych ward. So that's where we started. But we've really sort of embodied our healthcare roots lately. So we've really tried to keep up with other healthcare disciplines like, you know, physicians or PTs. And so we sort of lost what makes us great, which is being in the community where people are and helping them do the things that they need and want to do. Mm-hmm. So while, yes, there is an area of OT that is mental health that you can specialize in and you might see us in facilities where individuals have mental illness or in inpatient psych wards, homelessness was kind of a new area. It's been maybe 10, 15 years that we've been exploring this and um, we're getting more of us that are doing it, but it's still such a small number compared to the number of us in the profession as a whole. So what you're doing here in St. Louis, I mean, this is this is breaking some ground here. It really is. Um, it's a unique model because we're using student-run services. So we're bringing in students from Washington University School of Medicine, and they're the ones that are running the services. I sort of serve as a mentor and I teach them how to do this so that we can create a new generation of occupation therapists that are prepared to serve our marginalized populations. So these students, I mean, they haven't even graduated. Are they ready for some of the challenges that, that come with this? <laughs> yeah. So we do a lot of training. Um, <laughs> you know, we start with crisis intervention and, and we start them after their first year. And these are all graduate students. They're getting master's and doctoral mm-hmm. degrees. Um, and then I'm with them every step of the way. We sort of wean them into it. So we start off with we help them a lot, and then we just kind of let them take over. And it's amazing to watch them flourish. They really um, are much better prepared to go into practice because they've had this experience than before. Um, and we, the, the clients that come to us, they're aware that they're being treated by students. They're also aware that there's a licensed therapist in the room with them. So um, they're not by themselves. But I think in many ways, the clients feel like it's a chance to give back, a chance to mm. form a sense of community, teach future students what they would want people who are going to be treating them to know. Hmm. So it's a really neat experience for both sides because the students grow, but so do the clients in, in, in learning how to help. This is a two-sided relationship here. It really is. And the relationship that the client and students form is so deep. They, so the students spend three semesters with us. And by the end, every time the clients are so sad to see those students graduate. And I always hmm. tell them, you'll get a new cohort. But <laughs> And so as these students are there and they're, they're working with these people who are dealing with homelessness, is there sort of an organized curriculum, like we want to work on X, Y, and Z, or do things flow as freely as they, they flew in the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's a good question. So um, we've had a lot of people ask for an organized curriculum, and that really goes against what occupational therapy does. Hmm. So we believe in something client-centered, meaning it's defined by the person that we're seeing, and it meets them where they're at. So, you know, we have some ideas. We always practice evidence-based practice, so we pull our literature, and we know 
you know, generally what this population needs. But we always ask them, what do you what do you want to learn in the next month? Mm-hmm. And then we sort of do um, a month at a time on a specific topic. And we try to make it very timely. So like in February for Valentine's Day, we try to do healthy relationships and, and sexual health. Um, and we talk about what are good communication skills and things like that. But we also then ask the clients, what do you what do you want to work on related to this topic? Um, January, we did goal setting and so and, and health a little bit. So actually this morning, because it is Wednesday, um, the students did a really great group and we did some chair yoga. Um, they did some understanding of what are the things that, that bring you health during the day. And, and clients talked about, you know, washing their hands and seeing the doctor and mm-hmm. wearing my mask. Um, you know, hearing you talk about some of these things, things like goal setting or, you know, less so the chair yoga, but some of these <laughs> things that are maybe a little more mental and emotional, it, it leads me to wonder, what's the difference between what an occupational therapist would do and what a social worker would do? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question because we get this question a lot. Um, and social workers are like our partners. <laughs> um, so in um, a community-based setting, social workers are certainly our best friends and they have access and knowledge to so many resources. And so they are a great partner to help clients get linked up with things, um, to get housed. But Social workers, I always say, are overworked and underpaid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's been statistically demonstrated yes. in many studies. <laughs> um, so it's great to have us as a counterpart because we are uniquely trained um, with healthcare knowledge. So we are healthcare practitioners at heart to teach skills in a way that people understand. Mm. Um, we are trained to not not treat mental illness, but enable activity regardless of mental illness. And we are trained to address cognition. So we see a lot of cognitive deficits in this population. So I like I always say, social workers can find you housing, but an occupational therapist is the person that's going to make you stay housed. Hmm. We're going to teach you those skills and make sure that you're able to stay in that environment. And you had talked about this idea of maybe um, how to, to shop for a healthy meal, how to you know do this cost effectively or even do it in a food pantry. Is this something where you would go out and, and actually do a trial run then? Yeah. So um, one of the groups that comes to mind that we did, um, so at St. Patrick's Center, if you've been there, um, kind of a kitty corner across from it is a gas station. And about a block down the street is a grocery store. And so what we did is we took our group of of participants, we broke them in two, we gave everybody $5 and told them to go buy a healthy meal, half at the gas station, half at the grocery store. And we brought it back and we looked at the differences of what people brought and the nutritional content. So the people from the gas station got, you know, a candy bar and a soda. The people at the grocery store maybe got a box of granola bars or a box of microwave popcorn. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we talked about, you know, those are only a block difference. How could you maybe make the most of your money by going to the grocery store? And how is the nutritional content better? There's actually a food pantry in St. Patrick's Center. So a lot of times we'll go down there and grocery shop for things and then make a list of the things we need to supplement with. Hmm. So we are really, we do a lot of being in people's actual environment. We want to go out, we want to do things. We don't just stay in the building. So this all sounds so idyllic, you know, <laughs> you're, you're kind of going on these interesting trips and, and people are working so well together. As you mentioned, this is a population where there are often issues of mental illness. Can that sometimes get in the way of, of some of these things going as smoothly as you might hope? Certainly, yeah. So we see a lot of active mental illness, um, whether it's undiagnosed or just untreated. Um, And then we also see a lot of of active substance use. Um, So one of the things that helps is that we're within St. Patrick's Center. And so St. Patrick's Center itself has its own sort of rules and regulations about how you have to behave to be within it. Um, but I have worked at other organizations where that's not the case. Um, and so we get a lot of training on how to how to work within sort of mental illness or substance use episodes 
I always say, in my opinion, and other um, OTs may have a different opinion, there is a point where you know, people need other medical treatments first, you Mm -hmm. know, um, before they can work with us, because you do have to be um, within a certain ability to engage in daily activities. But there's so much you can do with someone who is experiencing mental illness or experiencing substance use that works around their daily activities. So if you are a substance user, you still need to have a budget. We just need to budget for your substance use. How can we, you know, bring that in? And that's something that healthcare has for a long time ignored. We've thought, mm-hmm. you know, this is not this is not ours to talk about. And I'm really trying to sort of decolonize healthcare as well and recognize like let's use a harm reduction policy and let's, you know, make sure that we're addressing what people actually want to work on, not just what we as as um, you know, middle-class white folk want to work on. Can you give me an example, um, obviously without using names, but a a time where this ended up making a practical difference in someone's life? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, I think the the one client that comes to mind, um, he was a younger guy, um, you know, 18, 19 when he came to me, um, had grown up in the foster care system and, and had an active mental illness. He lived in his own apartment, but it was filthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, the, the social workers, they placed him in our care. Um, and when he came to me, he was using substances. And we talked to him about the harm that substances would do to him. And it just happened to be that that weekend in St. Louis, we saw a lot of substance use overdoses. And that scared him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he sort of had this moment of clarity and wanted to get clean. And then we worked with him. We taught him, how do we clean an apartment? And we started with, what is your version of clean versus my version of clean? (laughs) And how do we make a checklist for cleaning? Um, He learned how to cook his own food. Mm -hmm. And one thing that was really important to me, he had a lot of aggression from a lot of trauma in his life. And we did um, hook him up with mental health services. But he found soccer. There is actually, um, I don't know if it still exists, but at the time there was a homeless soccer league called the St. Louis Roadies here in St. Louis. And he became the goalie. And it was it was transformative because when he was angry, he just went out and kicked the soccer ball instead of yelling or using drugs. And he and and soccer became really meaningful to him. And so we got to the point where he was housed. And the last time I actually heard from him, he came back because he wanted to plan his first vacation and he wanted some assistance in how do I find bus tickets and how do I find a hotel and those kind of things. That must have made <laughs> you so happy to see him come back asking those kind of questions. Yes. That's, yeah. I mean, how terrific. You'd also talked about this being a two-way street, the Students are learning so much from it. Do you have an example of a, a student, again, without using yeah. names, somebody where this has helped transform them or, or their view of the world? Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, one that comes to mind is a student of mine who was, she she came in and she was very timid, um, just sort of afraid, afraid that she might say the wrong thing or insult a client. Um, and, you know, our clients are, they're great. They're hysterical. They, they're so funny. They're so full of life. And so I said, you know what? talk to them. And and she did. And she got really good at using humor in a different way. Than, and she really came out of her shell and became confident. And one of the biggest skills I see from my students that's not teachable in the classroom mm-hmm. is flexibility. It is really hard to teach flexibility in the classroom. We try when we do role plays to like throw wrenches at students, but a role play wrench is different than a real wrench. Right. Then you getting up in front of 10 clients and saying, this is the plan for the day, and them saying, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that nobody in that role, you're going to feel that pushback in the same way that you feel it. And and so they can learn that flexibility in real time. Yes. And it really helps them. So after they finish their coursework, they go on to um, two rotations of clinical rotations. And I have seen my students who have been with us have 
better times on those clinical rotations because they have that flexibility. And then, you know, take that into practice and they're so much better at rolling with the punches and not having a written out plan. So this sounds amazing on both ends. Um, And yet, as you said, this is also kind of novel. There's not many places doing this kind of thing. Do you find that students are coming out of this program wishing they could do more of this? And frankly, there's just not a job where somebody wants to hire the occupational therapist to do it. (laughs) Yes, you're 100% correct. Um, That's sort of our biggest issue. Um, when we and, and, it, and I bring it break it down to sort of two main issues. One, um, organizations and individuals who run homeless services, they don't know that occupational therapists can do this. Yeah. So getting the word out, doing things like this, um, allow people to even know that we exist in this realm. And then two, it's funding. It's always going to be funding. <laughs> Boy, isn't that always the St. Louis problem right oh there? Oh my gosh, yeah. yes. Um, so, you know, we certainly, we teach them how to write grants or how to be part of grant writing, how to, you know, take data and all of those things that would support grants or, or find unique ways to get jobs, maybe take a job that wasn't originally written for an occupational therapist, but something that we could fill. Um, but sort of, we are we tend to be slightly more expensive than a social worker mm-hmm. um, because of some of the training that we've had in, in people the have to realm. pay for these advanced degrees and, yes yeah. yeah we have a master's or doctorate and we're it's in a medical school so you know we're going to be a little bit better trained but I, I find that once someone hires an occupational therapist, they tend to want to hire more. They mm-hmm. tend to recognize the benefits and the reasons <laughs> that it's worth it. Well, so Quinn, hearing about this program today, uh, it just it, this just sounds so amazing. And I just <laughs> kind of want to get the word out. And yeah. here we are on the radio. Hopefully that will help. <laughs> but in our final minute, what, what, what thought would you want to leave people with as they're thinking about occupational therapy and, and thinking about this program? Yeah, I think overall, I would just want to tell you that occupational therapy is everywhere in every city. And you would be amazed at how many organizations in the community have occupational therapists. So if it's something that you think would be worthwhile for yourself or a member of your family, reach out to these organizations and ask about occupational therapy. Or if nothing else, reach out to your local occupational therapy school Hmm. because a lot of them are looking for community partnerships to teach their students the same way we do. So if you're an organization who thinks, man, I would love an occupational therapist, try reaching out to a school. And I bet there might be somebody there who would be willing. Boy, that's some great advice. It sounds like this program, this is a program that could be replicated. Absolutely. That's what we're hoping. It could be something that's everywhere nationwide. Well, Quinn Tominski, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really loved it. And Quinn is an assistant professor in Washington University's program in occupational therapy and psychiatry. And if you want more information on getting involved at St. Patrick's Center, whether that's volunteering or donating to help this population, you can see stpatrickcenter.org slash take hyphen action. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.